Hey folks, thanks for joining me on Ultra Habits. I'm your host, RJ Singh. My show is dedicated to all things executive. Here, we understand the unique challenges of executive life and the things that will no doubt come up in your business and personal life that have the potential to impact you negatively. On this show, we interview the world's top minds from the fields of business, medical, military, sports, the sciences, academia, and much, much more. Our goal is to leave you after every episode with more knowledge, wisdom, and awareness that ultimately help you improve your habits and move you and keep you at peak performance. Enjoy. And again, folks, thanks for joining me. Why do some people have turning points in their lives? More importantly, are these moments in time something that can be created or do they just happen? Some people describe rock bottoms, moments of clarity, or simply sheer desperation that sparks a survival instinct. While this phenomenon need not be so profound in your life, the question remains as to how we can better harness our struggles in bad circumstances as a catalyst for change. Today we have Bernard Tony Jr. on the show to talk about how he rose from the streets to ultimately walking and working within the White House. Enjoy. Bernard, welcome to Ultra Habits, man. We are coming at you from Melbourne, Australia. Where are you at today? I am currently in Maryland, right outside of the Baltimore area between uh, Baltimore and D.C. There you go. And it, it, you're you're not from Maryland, are you? You're from Georgia, right? I am from Atlanta, Georgia, but uh, after retiring from the White House, we kind of liked our community, so we wanted to stay as close as possible. How do you go with the cold? You know, we have a whole lot of heat. I keep a very high electric bill. That's not the cool. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I guess you're you, you get away from that Atlanta. It was humid, isn't it? Be hot, so yeah, right? Yeah, it gets nasty. It's a level. I mean, I would never want to go to that extreme. Um, but I, I lived in cold areas after being in the military for 21 years, so I've gotten used to it. Yeah. So we're gonna dive into that. What you know, Bernard? I've been watching you on on LinkedIn and just kind of I I really resonate with you. You know, you know, uh, really involved dad father you're a husband um ethical you you know uh, you're all about your conduct um you're strong with your values and i had seen a post you did back in the day just about where you came from right like if someone met you today they'd be like wow bernard you're super together like like have you always been like this <laughs> but what was what was interesting was when i dove into your story like there was a real backstory there around you know a life on the streets and 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 where you were prior to becoming a doctor and, and working in the White House. And then I even dove deeper and learned that like you were actually a pretty gifted young person from what I understand. Like you you had opportunity. So you actually started good, went bad, and then came good again, which is which is interesting. So I really want to dive into that whole story. So why don't you take us back to like Bernard 1.0 like where is Bernard the original version of Bernard who who is that where is he from uh that's a good question I have to think about that all the time myself uh again thank you for having me this is this is an opportunity I really appreciate it um Bernard 1.0 uh I would say that I was I was uh I was a smart kid growing up but where I grew up in Atlanta Georgia smart wasn't cool um and so uh, it was one of those things where I, I spent majority of my childhood trying to fit in. And in very, very early on, I was identified as a, as a person who had, you know, relatively, you know, high levels of intelligence. Um, and I, I can think back as far as um, Duke University um, used to have this program. I think they still have it where they would reach out to families who have kids that are considered to be gifted or have some sort of talent. Um, and then they'll bring them up to Duke University in North Carolina to do um, some sort of program. And I was selected for that, uh, but during that time, I was also struggling with my own identity as a very young kid. We're going back to maybe like 10 or 12 years old. Um, at the same time, I was selected to participate in this program called the M2M program, which is minority to majority program. Um, and essentially what they do is they bus black kids to white schools, and I was bused to a a white magnet school. This is like, I'm, I feel like I'm like 70 years old with like civil rights era, but 
in Atlanta, Georgia was still really segregated. And so this was a sort of an integration plan. And so I was selected to go to this, this program. I was also selected to go to this uh, magnet school. Uh, but all that meant that A, I wasn't cool and B, I was outside of my element with people who didn't look like me, people who didn't grow up in my social economic background um, and who were not in the same cultures I did. So I can do, I did everything I could to get back to that comfortable environment, even though it wasn't an, an ideal environment. And so that was Bernard Walcott, a smart kid um, that was sort of uh, in an environment in which I was really struggling to fit in. And so I found myself going right back to the areas um, that most parents wouldn't want their kids in. Were your parents strict, Bernard? They, my my father is very strict. Very strict man, uh, military guy. Uh, and he, um, and, but, you know, I, I definitely had both parents in my life and I still have both parents. But he was very strict, to answer your question, yes. And did you find, I, I had a very similar experience, particularly in junior high, where there were, like, being cool was about the environment I perceived they what what they thought was cool was kind of gang banging yep. and and just like really not doing the right thing and i was academically inclined to a degree but i was very athletic but i didn't see that mm. is is cool now when you were young and you were going through that internal struggle of like do i fit in do i not like reflecting back on yourself did you feel like you had a strong sense of self or were you kind of trying to be all things to all people um yeah the, the latter so uh i'm a shorter guy uh, very short so i grew up and i was kind of bullied a little bit and so one of the things that you can do if you if you can't be tall and strong and all the other things you do look visually vicious right so um part of part of that was getting tattoos you know at, a, at 15 years old getting gold teeth uh 12 gold teeth um at the age of 16 and so all of that was some sort of portrayal that I'm hard, I'm a thug. Um, and to your point, the uh, the heroes of the day, if you will, were the, were the drug dealers. They were the ones with the nice cars. They were the ones with the girls. Um, and without any real mentors or leadership or anything like that, you know, um, that I was able to latch on to, I latched on to what, you know, what was ever purported in rap music or whatever my other friends around me uh, valued as, as cool. And so those, that was all those things. With your dad... Mm -hmm. obviously being a military person in, in disciplined to a certain degree, I would imagine, like, was there a disconnection in your relationship with him? Like, was there a reason why he wasn't able to corral you into a certain direction? Great question. Uh, father always worked hard. Uh, he still worked for the same company. He works for Ford Motor Company. He's been there, uh, you know, th that generation, right? Um, and so they just keep working hard. They, you basically have to tell them you don't work anymore uh, for them to leave. And so he's still working there at 67 years old. His shift was second shift. Um, so that meant that I was a latchkey kid. My mom worked at a bank. My dad worked second shift. There was a gap of about two hours in which we didn't have any parental supervision between, let's call it, 3.30 and 5.30. Um, and so I never really saw my father Monday through Friday because when I was in school, he was catching up on sleep. And when he was awake, uh, I was in school. And so um, I saw him maybe on the weekends if he wasn't sleeping a lot. And so in all of that, I think I was able to slip through the cracks. I got a different question for you. Mm -hmm. Your father being in a, 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 you know, American military, but you guys grew up in the South. Was he a patriot? And, and was there any kind of... Like, how did he feel about, obviously, you know, you, you had the civil rights movement not that long ago mm -hmm. in the United States, mm -hmm. which obviously impacted the African-American community massively. And there was still mm -hmm. stuff going on in the South. But you've got your dad, who's actually a, a, a military man. He's a patriot. Like, how was that for him? Like, did he struggle with being a patriot of a country that also had been such a challenge for the African-American people? Like, what was that like? You know, I think it was, I think it's a complicated um, history and a complicated um, present time as well. My mother gave me this story of, you know, she didn't really trust white people growing up. And I sort of had these, you know, you, you take your values from your home. And so I kind of adopted 
So the same strange values where the only touch points that I had with white people was when I went to that magnet school. And I was only there for a few months before I was, you know, kicked out of school for bad behavior and brought back to my school. And the other only touch points that we had, at least for when I was growing up, was with, you know, uh, law enforcement, you know, over policing and things like that in my neighborhood. Um, my mom tells me the story of when they were driving from Detroit, Michigan, where they're originally from. Um, down to Atlanta, Georgia, uh, with her father, and um, and she was not allowed to use gas at a gas station. The, the gas station guy came out and said, "Listen, uh, you know, you fill in a blank. You're not welcome here. You can't pump gas." And my mom tells me this story of running out of gas down the road. Um, I think my father served in the military um, during a very interesting time where um, we were still just kind of getting into like this integration of black people into white units. And uh, and I think he did well enough that he was, you know, stationed overseas in Germany for a little bit. Um, he was infantry. So that was a predominantly white and it still is a predominantly white um, sort of military occupational skill. So I think he had much more interaction, positive interactions with people um, that he wasn't as um, narrow minded. Uh, but my mom, on the other hand, didn't have those experiences and she just had these you know, negative touch points. So I think I had a little bit of a mix, but, you know, by and large, outside of my dad's military experience, he didn't really, um, he didn't really have to work with a lot of people that didn't look like him. They were raised in Detroit, Michigan in an all black neighborhood. They moved down to Atlanta, Georgia, where I was raised in an all black neighborhood. You know, like if I, I kind of reflect on this part of your, your, your life and your story, it really highlights environmental factors, yes. you know, and how strong they are. I interesting little story. I, you know, I, I was a complete basket case in school and I, I, I went to a really rough school and to fit in, I went deeper into that environment mm -hmm. instead of like burying my head in the books. Mm -hmm. And it was really funny when I was in Australia. Um, I, I live in Australia, obviously. I picked up uh, my mom from the airport. She had landed in Sydney from San Francisco, where we're from. And there was a, a guy on that plane that I went to school with that got off the plane, too. And he was here for business, yeah. African-American kid. We caught up that night for dinner, and we were reflecting on our childhood. And we went to all the same schools, mm -hmm. right, from primary to, to high school. He ended up getting a scholarship to like MIT, went to Columbia, and he works for Lockheed Martin. We completely experienced the school and the environment in the same way. We were both terrified. Mm -hmm. But his solution was to bury his head in the books, and he knew that it was temporary. And if he focused, he'd get through it, right, in the long term. But I didn't have that long-term view. Like, so I didn't have that strong sense of self mm -hmm. to be able to to kind of be like, this is my path. This is where I'm going to go. And I let my environment shape me, whereas he didn't. But I would say that in the main, not all kids are built the way Eric was. Like a lot of kids are going to look to their environment and get shaped by their environment. And it's something that I think with your stories, extremely um, prevalent and obvious, right? So, uh, which which is interesting. So I don't know if you have anything to say on that. Absolutely. Environment is everything. Um, I had no idea what the world was outside of Atlanta, Georgia, growing up. Everything was Atlanta, Georgia, the rap music, the people that I had no idea what San Francisco even may, you know, seem like growing up. And so you had this unique experience where you were able to sort of travel around. Um, I, I kind of lived my life within a 12 to 15 mile radius. And that was that's all I did. Until I joined the military. And so that was the dramatic change of environment. Yeah. And so what ended up taking you to the military, Bernard? Like, how did that un un unpack? Because that, I, I mean, that's what really prompted me to start following you. When I saw that picture of you with the gold grills. <laughs> and then his military dude. I'm like, what's going on here? So walk us through that, man. Let me, let's, let's walk you through that. So yeah. um, I, I failed everything. I failed everything in high school, whether whether it was on purpose or I just at some point after you don't read, you know, for multiple years, it's hard to pass a test. So I graduated with a very low GPA. I had no idea where I was going with life. So at the age of 
I think 16 and a half, um, I signed up for the delayed entry program where I basically committed myself to the military in my senior year. Um, and then as soon as I graduated, I had a contract to join the army at 17. But what, what gave you that level of insight that you needed to do this, like, and not go down the street? Like, uh, th that's an intervention. Yeah. Like, what, what, right. how did you, like, what well, got you to do that? Was your dad, like, you better do something, I'm going to kick you out. Oh, okay, right. But, but yeah, yeah, that was a part of it. It was, uh, <laughs> boy, I don't know what you got to do, uh, but you got to leave here, right? <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to go to the army, but you got to leave here. Um, uh, or you got to pay me rent, which was kind of an interesting concept. Pay you rent for the same room I've been living in for the last five years for free. Um, it was that, or uh, it, you know, it was hopelessness. I was I was inside of a cafeteria, inside of my school cafeteria. I'm I posted up on the wall, gold teeth, gold chains, all sorts of stuff, looking like Flavor Flavor. If you know who that is, um, and uh, the only thing I was missing was the clock. Right, I didn't have the clock. Um, Bridget, <laughs> right, right, right. the tall blonde. <laughs> I didn't have that, but there was. They used to place recruiters, and I don't know if they do that anymore. But they used to place recruiters in this in the school. And there was a guy named Terry Daniels who walked up to me and said, uh, "You know, been looking at you for a while. Would you, you know, want to take this test?" And uh, I was just right for picking because I, I think I was I was um, I was nervous about what I was going to do after high school. I knew I was in college bound. Um, my jobs consisted of Popeye's, McDonald's, uh, you know, Pizza Hut. Uh, and so I really had no idea what to do next. And he sold me uh, this great dream that I could be all that I could be. Um, and so I, I bought it. I, I bought into it. And, um, and so I made that decision. And it wasn't completely foreign because although my father didn't talk to me about his military career, I saw his military uniforms in the, in the house as a, as a strange Segway, he still wore his military uniforms when he was cutting the grass, kind of. <laughs> no idea. I, I have no idea. And that's just um, an eccentric old man, right? Like, just dad, dads do weird shit. That's one of them, right? Like, right, right. <laughs> so, uh, so it wasn't completely foreign to me. And then you have this guy that's basically selling me on a future when I've never thought about a future. Um, I just knew that this was the end of this road, meaning high school, and I have no idea where I'm going. Uh, so I didn't have a plan, but there was a person there to sell me um, on on a good deal. He sold me up. That's interesting. I had a similar story, but it was an entrepreneur. And I think that that's there's a key there that I think we should highlight. Like when you're at rock bottom and you have that magical moment of an alternate, more attractive path to a new identity, that's when mm -hmm. effectively you were given. You're like, well, I've got my current state. I posted mm -hmm. against the wall looking like Flavor Flav without the clock. Versus like, here's an opportunity to be successful in something so, and you're already, it's something. And, and that's, that's a beautiful moment. So you take this path, you, you obviously have to then rip the gold teeth out and, and all that. Like, and, and, and you, like you, you, do you finish high school, drop out of high school? Do you go to boot camp relatively quick? Like what's the, what's the go? Yeah. So that window, you mentioned rock bottom. Rock bottom wasn't that. Rock bottom was... <laughs> So Flavor Flame posted up against the wall. That's, that's relative rock bottom for some people. That wasn't my rock bottom, though. My rock bottom was um, a signing contract, I believe, in like December. In March, this will be 24 years ago. Um, in March, I was, I was getting ready to graduate, and I was celebrating graduating with my friends. And uh, this is where this sort of traumatic story um, kind of comes into place. Uh, we go to a club. We're drinking, we're having a good time, we're partying, and I have three of my good friends in my car. Um, and then we, um, we, after we leave the club, we go to a gas station, and I was involved in a drive-by shooting. Um, and so that drive-by shooting um, was, uh, it was, I feel like it was sporadic. I don't feel like it was something that was targeted against me. Maybe it was targeted against one of my friends, I don't know. Uh, but as I'm leaving the gas station, shots ring out. My car begins to take rounds, and I'm hearing them kind of walk in towards my car. Um, and then I start taking rounds in the hood, the door, uh, and my friend Ivan Gray gets shot. I believe the bullet went through the through his back and came out the anterior chest, so the front of his chest. Um, and that one bullet was a fatal shot. And so as he leans over, you know, and uh, and I'm, I have my hands on the gear shift, I feel his blood pooling all over me. Um, and then I drive about a mile down the road or so to pull him out of the car, and my friends are all around me. 
saying, don't let them go to sleep. Don't let them go to sleep. Save them. Um, and so that's all I remember uh, before his lights were out. Um, and he stopped breathing. And that was rock pop. Three weeks later is when I went into boot camp. And so that was the end of March uh, of 1999, uh, that, that, uh, that death uh, by drive-by shooting, that murder. And then I was in boot camp April 19th of 1999, just three weeks later. Did that solidify your sense of new purpose and resolve? Or it's solid- like, I Yeah, it's, um, it, it, I don't know if it, I think that was the start of me not wanting to be in a situation where someone really needs me and I have no idea how to help them. As you can imagine, I'm 17, everyone's 17. The, uh, the, the murder suspect, which you know was later convicted, was 17. We were all 17. Um, and so, um, but that, that was the most helpless I've ever felt in my entire life. Yeah, I have my friend who's bleeding, coughing up blood, and I'll call 911 and they're asking me all these questions that I can't answer. I have no idea what to do. Um, and, uh, and I felt, you know, you know, initially I felt like I, I failed him. I felt like I had some responsibility to keep him alive. If you can imagine these voices, uh, don't let him go to sleep, save him. You know, um, but I didn't have the skills, the resources. And looking back, obviously, there was nothing that I could have done. But at 17, I still felt like I felt. I felt like maybe maybe if I had to drove him to the hospital instead of, you know, pulled over on the side of the road and wasting time. Maybe if I could have explained to the dispatch operator uh, where his where his wounds were. Um, maybe if maybe if I didn't go to the club that night, you know, so I kind of carried a lot of that stuff with me. I, his death, I felt responsible for it. Um but looking back, there was nothing that I could have done. Do you think about him? I do. And I think that in, in, a, in a large way, you know, my life is a testament to what his life should have been or could have been. Because graduating high school was a monumental success for us. You have no idea. Um, that was, I know some people might listen to this podcast and say, yeah, that's like secondary school. Like, that's not a big deal. But Graduating high school for people like us was a big deal. Um, and so we were celebrating his just getting over that that finish line of being able to graduate. Um, and uh, and that's how his life tragically ended. Yeah, that's crazy. I um I had uh, some friends in high school and in fact I could have been there. Uh that we, we had a wedding party for uh, one of my friends in high school, his sister was getting married uh, and everyone was going to Oakland to the to the wedding. And one of the girls that was going to the wedding went to high school with, with all of us. Mm-hmm. Me and this other dude were like vying to date her. The other dude ended up winning. And so they were a couple. So he happened to be at the gas station that night because they went together to the wedding. And it was just a random random thing they were filling up petrol and he got shot and killed and they had a young they she was pregnant mm. um and he he died in kind of an innocent he was completely innocent um mm. and they were going to a wedding and so the whole process the whole wedding became you know it was just became a nightmare but i often think of him and i think that i actually could have been in that position had i been actually been the one going to that wedding that night um and I think about him often. I think about his son. And uh, yeah, what a crazy situation. So you get to boot camp. And, and I'm sure, and, and we'll talk about this later, like I, listening to you, I wonder what and how that played into you becoming a doctor as well. Like that's weird, right? Like, yes, I'm a PA by training, so physician assistant by training, but at the, I have a professional doctor degree. So how does that inform that? Well, let's walk down that path. So you go to you go to boot camp, and what's the process there? Like, did you do well? Was it like, oh my god, this is hard? It sucks. Um, I'll just be brutally honest with you. It was not. Um, well, people see like this before and after photo. It looks like there was a straight line trajectory. I hated every part of the army. Yeah, <laughs> and and it was it was mutual mutual. The army hated me. Um. You you wrongly assume that those gold teeth came off when I joined the army. No, they were still there. Uh, and, and so, 
I was uh, I was a private in the army. I still had all those gold teeth and all the nicknames of Goldilocks and uh, Super Superstar and all these other things. You know, uh, they they ridiculed me a lot. But one of the things that sort of um, that sort of stuck with me was that uh, a lot of my leadership did not think that I was consistent with what a soldier is. They say you don't belong here. Um, you just don't belong. You don't fit in. So those first several years, everything that I did, I failed. People would ask, well, I'll tell you, if, if you contextualize all this um, in one, in one um, sort of picture, uh, I was one of the few black people um, in, you know, my boot camp company, uh, which that's not uncommon. That's, you know, the Army's predominantly white, the U.S. Army's predominantly white. Um, so that wasn't abnormal. But what was abnormal was the gold teeth. Uh, the way that I spoke, I mean, I'm not really sure if I knew how to string together an English sentence, you know, that was not uh, ebonics at the time. Um, and, um, and I had to fly back to Atlanta, Georgia for that murder trial. So when I was, so when, when they contacted the U.S. Army and said that this guy has to go back for a murder trial, it just cemented all of these preconceived notions of who I am and where I came from. So after that, I was asked, what gang are you from? And everything, you know, all the way up against the point of calling me some sort of racial slur. And so I have a lot of good friends that are still on my LinkedIn that were my drill sergeants at the time. And they would protect me in a lot of ways. Like I remember this one situation where this one white drill sergeant was saying, all these, you know, what gang are you from? You don't belong here. You need to go back to the hood, blah, blah, blah. And my drill sergeant's name is Gary Berkeley, runs over to me. And he's like, Tony, get out on the ground and start pushing. So I started doing push-ups and stuff like that. And as he's kneeling down, he's like, don't let them take this away from you. Unless you want to go back to where you came from, don't let them take this away from you. And so he would just give me these words of affirmation in my ears. I'm doing push-ups. And then he would stand back up and pretend to yell at me. Now get back over there and start running. And, you know, let me, do you think that drill instructors were trying to make you quit or trying to make you angry? The other guys. The other guy, I think both. I think they truly did not think that I belong. When I moved to Texas, uh, because I failed the Russian language, I moved to Texas. I had a, another a first sergeant, which is like the highest, one of the highest levels of non-commissioned officers. And she was a female. She said, you do not belong in this man's army. Um, and I'm going to make sure that I sting. Yeah, right? And I'll say, you don't belong in this man's army. That's crazy. Hey, hey. So I go, and so she sends me to the dentist. She's like, this, this, you, there, there has to be a way to put you out and these gold teeth are going to be it. So she sends me to the dentist. <laughs> she sends me to the dentist and the dentist, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever gone to the doctor, but they're not really paying attention to you. They kind of looking at your, your record, but they're, they're, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they're not really looking at you. Uh, well, he wasn't looking at me as he's reading my dental record. And he says, essentially, you have gold crowns from tooth number seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So he's like, that can't be right. <laughs> and so he turns. And then you're like. He <laughs> turns and looks at me. He's like, oh, this is real. Okay. So then he had to write me a little letter that says that I remember it says something to the effect of the soldiers did to aesthetics as they present are not against any army regulation or policy. And I have to carry that around with me to say, although I look weird. I'm still eligible to be a soldier. Um, and uh, and at that point, I had some good mentors. I said, listen, at some point, you, you can't. It, it's not against policy, but if you ever want to promote, if you ever want any opportunity, no one's going to take you serious. Um, and so I went on a pathway of dental reconstruction and braces and, you know, all the, all the you know, the investment that the Army did to give me the smile that I have now. Yeah, beautiful. Look at that. You're like an anchorman now. <laughs> <laughs> So what's the situation though? So you get out, you, you, you're in the army, like what's the path to what's medical. the medical route? Like what? Yeah. Like what's, what, what's happening there? How do you, how do you get that thought? Yeah. In your head? So the first, the, the impetus was feeling hopeless on the ground in a lot of Georgia rock bottom. Right. Then at some point I join, I, I go back to language school and I learned French. Um, and they, the army gives me an opportunity to go work in army special forces. So I joined uh, Third Special Forces group out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and that group is designed to work in Africa. That's the reason why they have French cryptological linguists. Uh, but 9/11 happened, 
And so all the special operations were uh, consumed with Afghanistan. So here I am, this is French guy in a special forces unit in Afghanistan, and I'm not doing anything with my language. So I had this affinity, um, and I missed a few steps right there, but the army did send me through medic training, um, and, and I got some, some combat medic experience and training. But then I went back to learn French, and I found myself in special forces. Um, because of that combat medic training and my desire to want to just do something worth, you know, worthwhile, I ended up connecting with the Army Special Forces medics. And so in Afghanistan, when we deployed out to Afghanistan, we would do these medical civic action programs. And so we would basically go out into the villages in Afghanistan and, and perform medical care. And uh, I was just enamored by seeing there's this one guy named Bruce Holmes, uh, Army Special Forces, and I would see him just work magic out there. Uh, I mean, from trauma and everything else. And I loved it. I loved being able to take care of people, to be in a, a position, to have the skills and the resources to do so. And I just tethered myself to those medics. Um, and I got some experience in training with those guys. And then, um, and then at some point, um, I continued to <clears throat> take on opportunities that the Army gave me. Um, I knew at some point I wanted to go to school and, and practice medicine. But at that point, I didn't have any college. I also didn't have any real medical background other than combat medic school. And I knew college was the only way that I was going to get there. So I started taking college classes. And so one of my college classes, I tell people that I took English 101 on a mountaintop of Afghanistan bordering Pakistan uh, on distance learning, uh, on a distance learning platform. And so I just continued to do that, train, fight, study, until I finally decided to leave the Army to go to college full time uh, to get my first undergraduate degree. And that was the start of me on this pathway to go on to PA school and uh, and then, uh, and then eventually ended up at the white house. So you exited the army and then embarked on an education path kind of full time. Is that right? That is correct. I did two years worth of education ad hoc, you know, while deployed at night, that kind of thing. And then, um, and then I went to school full time for two years, um, in North Carolina, at federal state and I got my, my undergraduate degree in, in uh, psychology and now I became an officer. Um, once I became an officer, I, I was an administrative medical officer. So I ran a clinic in Germany from an administrative perspective. I was a, an executive officer. Um, and then I worked in that capacity. And then I have all these touch points with, with doctors and PAs and nurse practitioners and, and nurses and such. And it kept re reminding me that I want to lay hands on patients. I want to save lives. And so from that point, while in Germany, uh, I decided to go to, to PA school from there and and that's all she wrote. And I kind of uh, spent the rest of my life in the Indo-Pacific between Hawaii and South Korea, taking care of pilots and, and soldiers and things like that. And then and then I eventually uh, ended up at the White House. Did you, res uh, I know when I, you know, my undergrad degree, I kind of cheated my whole way through and I was really, I was still, I was selling drugs while I was doing my, I was really living a kind of a double life. But when I went and did my MBA, I was an executive and I really took to learning. Like I, I really flourished. How did you find learning in academia as an adult? Like, was it, did you really, really connect well with the whole process? Was it something that you loved to do? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've since gotten two bachelor's degrees, uh, a master's degree, a doctorate degree, and I'm finishing another master's in public health okay. in two months. So I became sort of this professional student. I love learning. Um, I did not have, you know, um, unfortunately, I, w I wish I had like this, und you know, you know, I didn't have to divide my time early on in, in life. I almost wish I could have just been that student, but I've never had um, sort of that uninterrupted um, time where I wasn't being a soldier, being a father, being, you know, all these things at while, at, while going to school. And so that's all I've done for the last, I'll call it 20 years. Um, has been a student of some sort, and I enjoy it. I enjoy being in the academic environment. I feel like if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. Uh, so I really try to find ways to make myself better and to demonstrate to my children that irrespective of what happens in life, you could always go further. And I, I just want to be a living testimony to them, at least my nuclear family. And I hope that spreads out to other people. So it's not just about me, it's about 
being a role model for other people who feel like that, uh, that they just don't have what it takes or they don't have the right circumstances. Mm. And, and with that, like, you know, we talk a lot about this at Ultra Habits. I mean, I think, you know, our audience and the people that follow the show are high performers, high achievers, but they have a lot going on, right? They have families, they've got, you know, whether they're educating themselves, running businesses, uh, doing lots of different things and managing that level of complexity can be challenging and getting that right is never a perfect science. Um, in terms of your family, because you do post quite a bit of stuff, you know, with your, your wife and, and, and your, your daughter, how do you find how you grew up informs how you parent positively and negatively? Like, do you find you have to sometimes struggle with your own past to ensure it doesn't seep in into how you you manage mm-hmm. your household? Because, uh, and this is a selfish question because for me, like there's the new RJ with the values and and everything I've learned and how I've evolved. But man, there's still all that shit back there yeah. that comes forward. Like, how do you manage that piece? And do you do you find that you sometimes don't manage it well, or you you, you do manage it well? Yeah, you know, I think I think there are times when um, when I found myself, although my dad and I didn't have a very close relationship, and he was very strict, um, extremely strict. Um, I found myself sort of defaulting to his level of, you know, being strict with my own children and, you know, this is my house and they're going to live by my rules and this other kind of, you know, but, but then I, I have a wife that tempers me. So I will tell you that um, if I didn't have a good wife to keep the guardrails on, I will probably naturally go, <laughs> go back into, uh, you know, Mr. Tony land. Um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, I think, I think uh, I struggle with with that but again i have a very good wife that you know teaches me a different way and part of that is she comes from a different culture that they don't rear their children she's south korean so she uh you know they they corporal punishment is not really a thing and it wasn't for her growing up so she's taught me to to not take that pathway but the other thing i'll tell you which is equally as dangerous my father was a hard worker if nothing else he was a hard worker and so that gave me my work ethic so that i ended up working very hard, which was beneficial for my career, but deleterious impactful for my family. So I'll work 14, 15, 16 hour days and just sort of, you know, to be honest with you, sort of neglect the the home front. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of my decision to retire from the military at the top of my career, when I could have continued on, was the fact that I knew that I needed to prioritize my family. And that resonated when... um, I was working with the vice president very frequently, traveling with her very frequently. Um, and uh, and one day my daughter said, you know, I, I didn't even invite you, um, you know, t- to our party because I knew you were going to be with the vice president. And so I was like, you know, they're, they're, they're recognizing that, that I don't even, I have no presence whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Then I thought about, that's exactly what made my dad and I not have a relationship. And at the same time, I was going to church quite a bit, and we did this exercise um, where they said, write every, you know, draw a dinner table and write everyone in your family around that dinner table. And they said, whoever you're closest to on that diagram, are you closest to them now as an adult as far as a relationship? And I said, oh, my God, this is, a, I was closest, I'm closest to my older sister. We sat right next to each other um, at the dinner table. Dad was second shift. He wasn't in a picture. And so um, in the picture that I drew it in the picture uh, figuratively. And so um, so I realized that I found myself not making it home for dinner most nights. Um, I was rarely at the dinner table. And so my wife and I sat down and we said, this is unsustainable. Um, If we want to have a a decent shot at life as a family, you're going to have to make some decisions. Yeah, that is hard. It is a hard, difficult one, particularly when you you tell yourself you're providing and you're a provider and expectations has also changed bernard to be honest like the era of men just working and 
it's like women have certain levels of expectation as well. Like the society's changed, right? Like we're not dealing with women from our mothers and, and previous right. eras. Like men, we need to be more dynamic and involved. And in many ways, there's it rightfully so, but it, it increases the pressure to be integrated. Um, so let, let's move on to your time at the White House. How do you even get there, man? So this is also for people that say, you know, there's a lot of language out there that like, you know, the systems hold you down, blah, blah, blah. Okay, yes, potentially that's true, but ultimately we can rise above our station. For somebody that was involved, obviously you didn't have anything to do with it, in a drive-by shooting that came from the background you had to make it to the White House tells us that if we really want to, we can make things happen, right? And um, I think that's important, ultimately. Yes, this, there might be systems and... and, and um, in society that don't uh, allow us to have the opportunity that others have, but ultimately it is our responsibility and we can. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's true. And, and I think you're a testament to that. So how do you even, what, how do you get to the white house? <laughs> like, what's the story there, man? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I had good mentors and yeah. uh, going back to, um, going back to really relying on people to show me something that's possible that I didn't know was possible is is how I got to the White House. There's a Stuart Miller um, who was a great mentor. He was teaching me when I was learning uh, the basis of medicine in Hawaii. And he told me that he once worked at the White House. And I was like, whoa, we actually, you know, that's a that's a place where we can serve and work. Um, it was it was a seed that was planted in the back of my mind. And I just kind of stored that away. Uh, went to South Korea, came back to Hawaii to practice medicine again. And then my friend, who was much like you in a lot of ways, his name is Travis Kaufman, Ironman, uh, just a stud. You know, he was selected to go to the White House. And now that's that second seed. I'm like, wow, this is actually uh, an opportunity. But I still don't feel like I, you know, I know it's an opportunity, but not for me, not for Bernardo. Um, My background, you know, I had a top secret security clearance for my time in special forces and things like that but also had these other strange um, predicaments in my career where I didn't have the, you know, the best performance um, and things like that. And so um, an opportunity presented itself for me to, to interview. And I flew from South Korea uh, to the White House to interview. And it was a prolonged sort of three to four day sort of ordeal of diff- different types of assessments and interviews and things like that. Um, and within, you know, within, you know, several hours of me getting back on the plane to go back to South Korea. Um, they told me, listen, we want you here. Um, you're humble. Uh, you, you're astute. Uh, we think you have, you know, the skills, the knowledge, the attributes to be able to be within arm's reach of the president at all times. Um, and so I took them up on offer. And so uh, it was, it, it blew my mind uh, that the opportunity was even, you know, there. But for someone who really didn't think very highly of themselves growing up, it really, um, shocked me as a person because I couldn't imagine having ever gone from those streets of Atlanta, Georgia to, um, to the white house. What did you do at the white house? What were you there for? Yeah. So the way we work is, you know, without going into a whole lot of classified sort of information, we provide, you know, medical coverage for the, for the president, the vice president, um, the first and second families. Um, and then we also perform medical care by proxy. So if you if you take care of the bosses, then we'll take care of you. So oftentimes we'll take care of Secret Service and, you know, stuff like that. But our primary uh, objective is to take care of our principals. And so I would, you know, go from, you know, providing covers for the president, providing covers for the vice president. Um, and so I did that for, for three and a half years. And, uh, and it, you know, we have this rigorous sort of training that we undergo and um, and maintenance training to make sure that if in the worst of situations, we can keep the most powerful people on the planet alive. How did that three years change you? Um, it was, you know, I, I would say that working at the White House is unique. It's, it's, uh, it's an honor. Um, there's a certain level of stress. I think you see presidents age, you know, pretty horribly in the, in the White House. Um, their staffs are probably aged as much as they are. <laughs> um, but it was it was interesting, RJ, because it was during in, in modern times one of the most 
bizarre periods of racial unrest and um in COVID and you know all these things that were they were not business as usual everything was abnormal I would say that the most recent time in history um where things were abnormal is probably not 11 um but uh but you know being at the White House when there's protests outside of the White House um you know race racially motivated people who are you know both sides are angry for all sorts of reasons um, and, uh, and walking out of that white house as a black man to, um, black protesters who are angry. That was, that was hard, you know, because it was, it was, you know, it was, it was hard to reconcile that, you know, I'm working here and I'm one of the few black faces that travels, you know, with the president and the vice president, um, and to see how many, how many of the people that look like me that are unhappy about, um, rightfully so about how they were treated in the United States and, and uh, and how they don't have faith in our government and our systems and things like that. And it was hard to reconcile that I was seen as part of that system. Um, and so um, that was hard. But I, but I knew that my primary focus was not to be on either side. I'm apolitical in that position. And the focus is to keep continuity of government and whoever's in that seat. My responsibility, my sole responsibility is to make sure that person is protected medically. What's the future look like for Bernard? What do you want? What's what's your aspirations? Uh, I have a lot of aspirations. You know, my one of the things that that um, that's always stuck with me is how poverty um, affects people. And so, you know, you have different types of you have relative poverty, like in the United States. I go, I lived in a poor neighborhood. That's relative to other people in the United States. Then you have this abject poverty uh, that people don't have enough money to stay alive. And I've lived in both of those environments, in Atlanta, Georgia, and in Afghanistan. Um, and so one of the things that I want to do is be able to affect both sides of that same coin, relative poverty by way of education and public health, but also uh, globally, as far as global health in, in very low-income countries. So my goal is to really bring solutions um, to marginalized populations, whether here or abroad, um, that are going to work in a cross-sectoral way to be able to bring all elements of development together. And that's whether it's health, that's infrastructure, that's economics, um, that's education. All of those things have to be mutually supporting to uplift people. And so I come from, you know, a population of people who were, you know, historically marginalized, but also, you know, you know, you go to some parts of Africa or Southeast Asia and you think you had it bad. You don't know what bad is until you go there. And so, um, but the, but the best people, you know, um, the people that gave me part of their goat meat when they didn't know if they had, you know, meat for the next month, right? Completely food insecure. I owe something to those people. Um, and so that's my motivation is to be able to impact people um, so they can get their their foot on the first rung of the ladder of, of upper mobility and development. Beautiful, man. So we're going to land this plane. But before we do, Bernard, we always delve into a habit or two. Um, I think particular to your stories, is a story of transformation and change. And say there's a young cat out there, gold grill, maybe not. <laughs> Do you know their version of a gold grill? Flatten grills and diamonds now. I think that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. Hey, I mean, hey, look, the hip-hop the hip hop culture now is really fluid, right? So it's very different to when we grew up, right? Right. But anyway... Um, like, you know, you have someone that's on a change path and they want to change. Like, what are some of the things they could do, whether in the form of habits, to kind of start to solidify that change? Like, what 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 are some of the things that when you reflect back on your own journey, you did to really strengthen your resolve for change, transformation? Yeah, um, two, two big things. One is um, read. And I know that sounds, I know it sounds weird, but... I didn't read my first book for leisure until I was 19 years old. Um, and so a lot of people don't have access to the mentors that I have access to. I can pick up the phone and call generals. They, a lot of people don't have that, but probably the most impactful people I've ever known to walk this earth. I've never met them. I've read their works. I've read what they've gone through. I've been able to learn vicariously through those people, through their writings. And so, if you can read, which everyone now has access to being able to read, read as much as you can. I read about a book a week. I read everything from, 
you know, from nonfiction to historical things that I just constantly read because although I've traveled the entire world, you know, as a soldier and working for the White House and things like that, I've gone many more places through books. And I think that's really uh, salient as far as my development. And I don't want to proselytize here, but pray. Um, I remember um, I remember those days after coming out of that that murder, that drive-by murder situation, thinking, God, don't let me, don't let me die here, you know? And, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you know? And so I literally walked through the valley of shadow of death, whether it was in the hood in Atlanta, Georgia, or in those valleys in Afghanistan. And I think that if it were not for God, I wouldn't be here. And so I, I can't, I can't sleep on that. I can't, um, I can't hold that back. I know a lot of people might see the world differently, but I'm speaking my truth. I think those two things are are a large part of the reason why I'm here and, and how far I've been able to make it. Excellent. And Bernard, if people want to find you, where can they find you and connect with you, man? I'm in one place. I'm on LinkedIn. So if you type in Bernard Tony Jillier, I'm the only one there. If you Google me, you'll find a lot of uh, podcasts and interviews just like this. Um, but I, I keep my, my network pretty professional, just like the folks like you, RJ. Um, I don't have any other social media. Uh, so I don't have Facebook, Instagram, and things like that. But if you have LinkedIn, um, even if you don't have LinkedIn, my my email address is there. My profile is public. So if someone wanted to be able to find me, they can literally just click, you know, contact me, and they'll be able to send me an email as well. So there's no TikTok with the gold teeth. Eh? I, you know, I I, I, I want to be able to twerk, but I, you know, I just I, I'm, <laughs> I think I'm getting a little stiff. I don't I don't have the little. <laughs> I don't, I don't have the most moves. You can't go back to Atlanta, man. <laughs> For a lot of reasons. But one of, one of them is, the, you know, I, I don't have those moves. <clears throat> no, they ain't going to take you back in College Park. No, they're, 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 they're... <laughs> uh, Well, look, man, I, I, I really appreciated the conversation, man. I know there's tons of value for not only the audience, but myself, man. Thank you so much for your time, Bernard. Thank you for having me, RJ. It's been a pleasure. For sure, brother. Hey, folks, thanks for joining me on this episode. With all the options out there, I am super grateful that you spent time with me. I hope that you've received value from this conversation. And if you have, I've achieved my goal. Your support is really appreciated. If you really, really like the show or you want me to know how we can make it better, please do leave a review letting me know and the world know your thoughts, yeah? If you want to know more about Ultra Habits and what we're doing, go to www.ugventures.co. Sign up for the quiz. You'll get some really good insights into the archetype in terms of your habits and how you can improve your habits in your business and in your life. You'll also get a weekly newsletter with some blogs, episode updates. I promise you we do not spam. I absolutely hate spam and I think it's super unprofessional. It's all about value. So anyways, folks, until the next episode, have a great week. Take care.